Well, it's so great to worship together musically, and uh, I'm so thankful for all the musicians in our church. And so Ryan and Avery and Blair, thank you, and Nathan as well. You've been up here a few times now, but we had uh, the, the newest member of our worship team come up here. So Laura, thank you so much for contributing your gifts. It was just wonderful to uh, hear you sing and to sing along with you. Appreciate it. Today's text is such a crucial text uh, for humanity. It's really where Paul steps back and says, this is the reality. This is the situation. These are your options. Today's text is all about life and death. One of the risks going through a book like the book of Romans, uh, for me, and I I wonder if it's not just for me, but we go through all these massive themes of, of life and death and righteousness and condemnation and wrath and forgiveness and mercy and grace and all these things which are so important to, to us personally in, in true form and yet they can be abstracted so easily so that it doesn't actually land and, and become really a, a part of our day-to-day life. Today's text is about life and death. It's so easy to stand up and talk about life and death. Through, through Adam came death, through Christ comes life. And it's just this abstraction. Except for me this morning, I'm reminded that this is real and this is, this is the reality that each of us must face. Life and death. A couple weeks ago, I was blessed with the opportunity to visit with uh, the Westerinks hours before Arthur was born, life. A couple of days ago, I read 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 to a longtime family friend hours before she died. Death. She died yesterday. It's one of the great joys and privileges of being a pastor. You get to walk with people through real life and real death. And you know, a couple days ago when I was sitting in the hospice on the bed, it was just me and Mena. I've known her my whole life. And I, I saw the face of death. Is awful. Now she was beautiful, but death is awful. And it's real, and it's coming for all of us. And I, I am confident that she put her faith in Christ very near the end of her life. And as I spoke to her about the gospel a couple days ago, and as I opened the Bible, I asked her, do you want me to read to you about the resurrection? And all she could do was really nod. And so I read, I could just see her face light up with life hours before she died. So what we're talking about today is critically important to every one of us in this room personally, but also to, for us to be ambassadors for Christ, for others. You're going to journey with people through the, the joys of new birth and life both biological and spiritual, and you will journey with people through the valleys of death. And so it's really important that we as Christ's ambassadors know 
that there is a re- reality behind this text. Life and death, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. So let's take a look at this text in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Would you please stand? Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. This is the Word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, as we take a look at this text, I pray that you would open our minds to this, but more than that, open our hearts. Help us to receive your word and be comforted, assured, and then commissioned to go out with the good news of life, reigning victorious over death. Pray that you would speak through me Use me this morning for the sake of your glory and the building up of your church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last part of the second major section of the book of Romans, uh, chapters 4 and 5, about justification. Let's just review very quickly uh, the macro structure of the book. The book of Romans can be divided into two halves. They're not equal in length, but you have chapters 1 through 11 and then 12 through 16. 
Chapters 1 through 11 can be subdivided further. You have chapters 1 through 3 where we learn about wrath and propitiation. That is, God will pour out his wrath against all sin. He will either pour out his wrath against your sin in you or he will pour out his wrath against your sin in Jesus Christ. And if you pick the latter, that's what propitiation is. Your sins punished, God's wrath poured out on Christ, his wrath satisfied. So if you take the path of propitiation, then you also get justification, sanctification, and glorification. So justification are chapters 4 and 5. Justification is to be declared or to be counted righteous by God. Chapter 6 and 7 is sanctification, and that is a, a transformation of your very nature. You, you've been made obedient from the heart. Chapter 8 is glorification, which is the goal of all this, that we would be raised back to life in glory, physically, super physically, without sin, without ever, ever any, any more fear of death or dying or sin or corruption or anything like that. We'll take a look at glorification in chapter 8. Then chapters 9 through 11 ends this first half of the book, and it's about election. Why is it that God chose Israel and not other nations? Why is it that he chooses some people and not others? Chapters 9 through 11. Then we transition to the second half of the book, which is right living. That is, in light of all of this doctrine, how ought you to live? How, how ought you to respond to what God has initiated? So you have God's initiative in chapters 1 through 11, and you have our response in chapters 12 through 16. Orthodoxy, the things that we ought to believe, uh, and then orthopraxy, the things that we ought to do. Right belief, right behavior. And behavior comes out of belief. So that's the book of Romans. We are now at the, at the last preaching text in chapter 5, the last text that's specifically about justification, being counted righteous. Throughout today's preaching text, Paul is establishing a contrast between Adam and Jesus. So Paul's really stepping back, and he's taking a look at the, the human predicament, and he's saying, I can really divide you into two categories. Uh, the one category is the category of Adam, and the other category is the category of Jesus. Adam's one transgressor, transgression brought death for the whole human race by contrast jesus one act of righteousness made available life for the entire human race in that sense adam and jesus become two federal heads of humanity what is a federal head of humanity it is a representative head they represent two kinds of humanity either you're 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 under the representation of adam he's your federal head which means you're under the law uh, you're condemned you will receive the wrath of god because you've sinned and because you've sinned you will die and after you die you'll be judged and you will be put away that's if you're under the representation of adam if you're under the representation of christ because of his one act of righteousness his righteousness covers your unrighteousness, and there is no condemnation, there is only life. And, and every transition brings more and greater life. So when your body stops working, you transition to a new and better way of living. And then when Christ returns and he raises your body back from the dead and your soul is reunited with your body, that is, again, a new and better way of living yet. It will forever be filled with the fullness of God. 
under Christ. So humanity can be divided into two categories, those who are represented by Adam and those who are represented by Christ. You are either in Adam. We're going to see that that's important wording. In Adam, meaning his actions are attributed to you. Or you are in Christ, meaning his actions are attributed to you. So do you want to be in the transgressor or do you want to be in the one righteous Son of God? Those are, those are our two options in life. If you are in Adam, you are ruled by sin and you are eternally dead. Death does not mean non-existence. Death means cut off from God. So you are dead now though your body is alive. When you die, you don't go out of existence, but you are put away from God, and then on, on the day of resurrection, you'll be raised back to life too, but you won't be raised unto eternal life in the presence of God. You'll be put away. So you'll exist forever in a resurrected body, but you'll be cut off from every source of goodness. If you're in Christ then you are ruled by righteousness and you are eternally alive. You are already on the other side of death. When did you die? On the cross, about 30 A.D. Paul begins this preaching text in verse 12. And in verse 12, we see he's trying to set up a contrast. He, he's, he's trying to say exactly what I've summarized for you, that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Uh, but he, he gets to the end of chapter 12, and he's introduced a new idea. So he goes on so this lateral thinking. He goes down this rabbit trail for verses 13 through 17. And it's not until verse 18 that he comes back to where he intended to start, and he tries again. So in verse 18, he says, okay, I tried to do this contrast in verse 12. I, I got sidetracked. Now it's verse 18, and he restarts his argument. So take a look at verse 12 there. Therefore, pause there. That therefore is just tying us back to what Paul's already said about justification. You're either justified or you're not. That's what he means there. You're either in Christ or you're not. So, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, now what you, we would expect grammatically, so also, or by contrast, but that's not what he says. Why? Because so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now he's like, oh no, I've introduced a new idea and I have to explain what I mean there. That's what verses 13 through 17 are all about, explaining the second half of verse 12. Now go down to verse 18, and you'll see he tries again. He even puts the therefore back in. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There it is. There's the contrast that we're looking for. One trespass leading to condemnation, one act of righteousness leading to justification. So what we're going to do in order to unpack this text, because grammatically this is a very difficult passage, logically it's not that difficult to understand. But if you're just trying to sort through and parse out what's written there, it's very confusing. So in order to simplify it, what I've done is try to give you the main idea already about two kinds of humanity, but now, as we get into the text uh, to, to show you that what I've said is coming out of the text, I want to start in verse 18 and 19. Because verses 18 and 19 capture the main idea of this text. After we understand those two verses, we'll double back to verse 12 and work through it and see the flow of Paul's thought. 
So join me in verse 18. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many were made to be righteous. So he doesn't mention Adam and Jesus there, but it's implicit, right? And in verses 12 through 17, we see that he does name Adam and Jesus. So by one man's sin, trespass, we all became sinners. By one man's act of righteousness, those who put their faith in him become righteous. So the main idea, one trespass, that's all it took. And all people were condemned to death. One act of righteousness, and all men had made available to them justification. So all of human experience, what Paul is doing, all of human experience can be boiled down to Adam's one transgression in the garden and Christ's one act of obedience on the cross. Those are the two most monumental moments in the history of humanity. One leading to death, the other leading to life. By Adam's disobedience, all of human, humankind were made sinners. By Christ's obedience, many were made righteous. It's not a difficult concept, at least in the abstract. Now, when you say, really? Really? So what Adam did impacts me, or what Jesus did impacts me, and, and I have nothing to say about it? Well, sort of. We do have something to say about it, because now we get to choose. Are you going to be in Adam? Are you going to... Hook your train to Adam, or are you going to hook your train to Christ? So, so we get to choose, but the activity, the actions are not our own. Let me give you five observations from, from this logic. Number one, our destiny depends upon the action of another man. We hate that. But we should be very careful before we hate it too much. We say, well, it's not fair. It's, it's not fair that Adam disobeys God and then he condemns the rest of us to sin and death. Okay. Maybe. I, I can understand the pushback. But then, what about this logic that how is it that we benefit by Christ's one act of righteousness? So if you want to say it's not fair for, for Adam's one act of disobedience to disqualify us from life, then the same logic would say, well, we cannot have life that comes from Christ's one act of obedience. But the observation stands biblically solid that our destiny depends upon the actions of another man. Adam's sin condemns us to sin and death. Christ's act of righteousness justifies us for eternal life. Either way, initially, we're passive. We are in. This is where that in language is. We are either sitting in Adam while he sins, and his sin is counted to us, or we are passively in Christ, and his one act of righteousness is counted to us. So initially, we're passive. But we're not always passive. 
though initially passive, though initially we do nothing, when you identify with Adam as your federal head, you will do as Adam did. And you will live out your sin nature by sinning. You're no longer passive. You are sharing in the sinfulness of Adam. So though initially passive, you actively are complicit with Adam by the very fact of your life. Likewise, if if you're in Christ, though initially you're sitting passively in Him, while He does the one act of righteousness, the one act of obedience that saves you, but then you actively do as Christ does. And this is exactly where we're going in chapter 6 and 7. You cannot say that you are in Christ if you do not have a desire to live a righteous life. Now, we're going to fall, we're going to stumble, we're going to fail, but we're going to live righteous lives. Not perfectly, but actually. So if you're in Adam, you will do as Adam did. If you are in Christ, you will do as Christ did. So though passive... We actively follow Adam or Christ. Observation number two. One trespass was enough to condemn the entire human race to death. We have to see this. This is the justice of God. We are a corporate entity. In our post-enlightenment Western worldview, we don't like to think of ourselves as a corporate identity. That, That whatever the human race does, we're all in it together. But we are. One trespass by the human race condemns the whole species. It's important. What was that trespass? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we find that this. God gave Adam a law. This is a revealed word from the Lord. Uh, the initial thou shalt and thou shalt not. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. This is God's law. You have what you are permitted to do. You have what you're not permitted to do. If you do what you're permitted to do, you will live. If you do what you are not permitted to do, you will die. Now, when God gave this law to Adam, he is the only human being on the face of the earth. He's the only human being in existence. Uh, Eve has not been created yet. He has no children. So this is a law for Adam the man, but it's also a law for Adam the race. And whatever Adam does, it's going to impact the entire race because we are one corporate entity in the mind of God. I know, okay, we could nuance that. I'm not going to right now. We share in this guilt. So Adam trespassed. What does it mean to trespass? To trespass is to break a revealed law of God. This is going to be important because there's a difference between trespass and sin. I'll nuance that in a moment. So Adam was guilty of trespassing or transgressing the law of God, which is very 
clearly given to him in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And that condemns the entire human race. Now, observation number three. One act of righteousness was enough to cover all of the trespasses and all of the sins of all people for all time. That's amazing. So if we think it's bad that one sin condemns us all, just think that one act of righteousness can cover all of the trespasses, all of the transgressions, all of the sin. This is a one-for-one reversal of the fall of human race. And we know that that one act of righteousness was the cross where Jesus obeyed his father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we can read about it in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us, that is he bought us back from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He, he bought us back from death by becoming a curse for us. By dying for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who is hanged on a tree. One act of righteousness undoes the one act of disobedience and all of the sin and all of the transgression that flows out of that one act of disobedience. Observation number four. This is very similar, so you have to work hard to see the nuance. One man's disobedience corrupted the nature of all humanity. So the one transgression condemned us all. Condemnation is a judicial verdict. Uh, God declared the human race to be guilty. But Adam's transgression also transformed our very nature so that we, everyone who came from the body of Adam, which is everyone, including Eve, became sinners by nature and we lived out of that nature. So to be a sinner is to act in accordance with a sin nature. So you can be a sinner without transgressing, and we're going to see that in a moment. The one transgression introduced sin nature into what it means to be a human being, and from a corrupted nature, from a sin nature, we live our lives in sinning. I'll clarify that in a moment. But what you need to see here is that the one act of disobedience by Adam didn't just condemn us judicially. It also corrupted our very nature. It changed what it means to be a human being. So that now we're going to live out of a sin nature. Which is what makes it so amazing when we find out observation number five that one man's obedience didn't just uh, justify us, so that's what the text says. Justification is a ju judicial verdict. I declare you to be not guilty. I declare you to be righteous. I do not count your sin against you. That's, that has nothing to do with our nature. That just has to do with our standing. But what we find out here is that one man's obedience purified the nature of all the elect. So justification is a judicial verdict. Righteousness coming out of Christ's one act of obedience restores a righteous nature in us so that we can begin to live out of a new nature 
That's sanctification, which we're going to begin to look at next week. Both happen by the one act of disobedience and the one act of obedience. Just take a look at verse 19 so that you see that I'm rooting this in the text. For as by the one man's disobedient, the many were made sinners. That's not about a judicial standing before God. That's about a corruption of our very nature. When Adam sinned, our nature was corrupted. Then the second half of verse 19, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Not declared righteous, but made righteous. Transformation of our very nature. So verse 18 has to do with justification, the, the, the legal standing we have before God. And then verse 19 has to do with sanctification, which Paul's just introducing here, and he'll get into it in chapter 6 and 7. And he's saying, but just as your nature was corrupted by Adam, so your nature is restored by Christ. Distinction. That's Paul's main argument in this passage. If you understand what I've just said to you, you, you understand the essence of Romans 5, 12 to 21. Two paths. One leads to condemnation and a sin nature, which, which leads to death. The other, justification and restoration of a righteous nature. So which path do you want? Take the path of Christ. With Paul's main argument in mind, let's go back to verse 12 and work our way through the rest of the text. Verse 12, Therefore, so in light of what we said in verse 18 and 19, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's the logic of verse 12. Adam transgressed the law of God. That is, God gave him a law and Adam broke it. That's transgression. The law was don't eat of this tree, the tree of, the good, of good, knowledge of good and evil. It's in the middle of the garden. When he transgressed this, he introduced sin into the human condition. So this is how I want you to think of the difference between transgression and sin because it's this distinction that derailed Paul for verses 13 through 17. What's the difference between breaking a revealed commandment, law from God, and sinning? Because I think we get a little bit sloppy in our definitions at this point. We think that sin is necessarily breaking a revealed commandment of God. Well, that would be sin, but that's not the definition of sin that Paul is using here. So transgression is breaking a revealed law of God, and sin in this passage is acting in accordance with a sin nature. Do you see the difference? To transgress, you have to break a revealed law that God gives you. To, to sin, you just have to live in accordance with your sin nature. So the one transgression brought sin into the human condition because Adam's nature was corrupted and everyone who came from Adam's body was corrupted. So that now, though from Adam to Moses, we're going to get there in a moment, there wasn't transgression to a revealed law. There was a lot of sin. Now look at, just look at this for a moment. It just takes one sin 
for all kinds of wicked behavior to emerge. Or one transgression for all kinds of wicked sin to come into the world. So sin, that is, a corrupted nature and the action that comes out of a corrupted sin nature leads to death. All men act in accordance with their nature. So if you have a sin nature and that's all you have, the only thing you can do is sin. And because the wages of sin is death, because everybody has a sin nature, we all live in accordance with the sin nature, so we will all die. That's the logic. Now, at this point, and I've hinted at it because it's so hard to unpack this without getting ahead of yourself, but at this point, Paul anticipates a theological problem. And as I said, this is why he breaks off from his contrast that he doesn't pick up again until verse 18. And this is the theological problem. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Actually, no, that's wrong. I don't know. I, don't, I, I wrote it down wrong. But the idea that I was looking for, it's not in Romans 4.13, but the idea is there is no sin where there is no law, meaning transgression. He says, how can we be counted guilty of sinning against God if God didn't give us the law until Moses? Like, how can he consider me guilty? I didn't know what the law was. Now, do you know what we normally do in our evangelical churches, right? We say, well, the universal law was written on their hearts, so they should have known the difference between good and evil. And that, there's some truth in that. But, but God says, it's not fair of me to count you guilty if I haven't told you what I expect. And because God is just and fair, he doesn't count uh, transgression where there is no law. And so that introduces a theological problem because the only law that we have uh, before Moses is the law given in Genesis 2, verses 12 and 13. And so Paul's, Paul asks the question, well, how is it that everyone died from Adam to Moses if God didn't give us any other law? And that's the problem. There was no law between Adam and Moses, so why did those people have to die? Why did God count their sin against them take a look at verses 13 and 14 this is exactly what paul says so the end of verse 12 so death spread to all men because all sinned now at this point a the holy spirit forces a red flag to come up in paul's mind he says okay paul you've just said inspired by me you've just said that uh, all all men die because all men have sinned and yet previously the holy spirit has spoken through his word that god does not count transgression where there is no law but the law didn't come till moses so how can god consider people to be guilty from adam to moses so that's the theological problem that that god has to answer and so he does verses 13 and 14 for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given now here's the point. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So I guess it was 5.13, not 4.13 that I was looking for. There was sin in the world before the law was given through Moses, but we cannot deny that there was sin was in the world. Uh, but God is fair, and he says sin is not counted in the sense of transgression where there is no law verse 14, and yet 
death reigned from Adam to Moses. But death can only reign if God is counting sin against people. So death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning, that is their sinful behavior, was not like the transgression of Adam. That's the point. Paul's identifying a distinction here between transgression and sinning. With transgression, you're guilty. God reveals a law, you break it, you're guilty, you suffer the consequences. Paul is acknowledging here that from Adam to Moses, when people sinned, they weren't doing that. Because God hadn't revealed a law since the Garden of Eden. So they were not transgressing in the same way that Adam transgressed. And yet, people still died. Which means, God still found them guilty of sin. How can God do that? Adam's transgression was far worse than the sin of everyone who followed after him because he actually broke a revealed word from God. Here's the point. Adam's one transgression corrupted human nature. It forever changed what it meant to be human apart from Christ. And it caused, this one transgression caused all kinds of sinning. So much so that by the time Noah comes along, God looks down and he says, oh, there's just wickedness in everyone's heart. I see nothing good about the human race. I see all kinds of sin and wickedness. But you know what God could not identify? Transgression. Because transgression is breaking God's law. How are we, how are we supposed to understand this? I, I think I found uh, an illustration that will help. When I lived in Ottawa... It was a beautiful October day and I was going down the road and a little pebble hit my windshield and it created just the smallest little break in my windshield. But it wasn't a big deal and it wasn't in my line of sight so there was no problem. And so I just kept driving and I could see that stone had, had definitely impacted my windshield. By the time December came along we had one of those minus 30 degree mornings. My car started because I had plugged it in. And when I started it and I turned on the defrost, from that one little spot on the windshield, as the defrost went across the windshield, do you know what happened? A crack. <laughs> and I, I watched as the crack went all the way across. And then from the middle of the crack, it went in this direction, in this direction, and I saw all kinds of cracks across my windshield to the point where I had to get it fixed. Now what I want to suggest to you is that the stone striking my windshield was uh, like Adam's one transgression. That was the only transgression against my windshield. And yet from that one transgression came all kinds of cracks. And those cracks in the windshield are like our sin. One transgression leads to all kinds of sinning. 
And they're not the same in God's mind. So the guilt judicially falls to Adam, but all of the sinning that comes out of the one transgression because he corrupted what it means to be human impacts us all. And death does not come from transgression. Death comes from sin. So by the time you get to the days of Noah, God says, there's so many cracks across my windshield from the one stone that struck in the garden that I need to replace my windshield. And that's what he did. So Adam then became the federal head of the human race, and his one transgression impacted everyone else who came after him. He was the stone that struck the windshield, and the rest of humanity, all the things that we do are the cracks across that windshield, especially from Adam to Moses. In this way, Adam is a type of Christ, because just as it just took one act to shatter my windshield, so it just takes one act of Christ to replace my whole windshield. And it's that one act of Christ that takes away not just the transgression, but all the sin. Jesus restores humanity to that spotless perfection. Take a look at verses 15 through 17. The free gift, that is, the one act of righteousness that heals humanity of our sin problem is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much that we could say here. Paul basically, in not so many words, is saying what Jesus did is greater. If one transgression can do that to the human race that's a powerful thing what adam did was a powerful thing against the human race think about the implications of what adam's sin and transgression did for the rest of us but the point in verses 15 through 17 is if adam was powerful and great to do all of that evil to us so much greater is the one act of jesus christ on our behalf that undoes all of that so if you had to say, which is stronger, Adam or Jesus? Which is stronger, death or life? Jesus is stronger, Jesus is greater, and life will prevail over death for those who choose life. Then we get to verses 18 and 19, which we won't preach again. But in those verses, that's the main argument. You can choose then. Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be in Adam allowing his one transgression to be counted against you for, for his corrupting, corrupting of the human nature to be your sin nature and for you to live out of that sin nature for your whole life? Or are you going to find yourself in Christ and are you going to allow him to restore you to what God originally intended for the human race? Are you going to allow his blood to cover over all of your transgressions? And are you going to allow him to reconstitute your nature, making you into a new creature so that you can live righteously? That's, that's the main argument of this whole section. There's one more issue that needs to be resolved, and I wonder if did you catch it? 
It says in verse 16, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses. Many trespasses brought life through Jesus Christ. I thought we were talking about one trespasses and all kind of sin. And this is where the text just goes, opens up into this place of awe for me. One trespass was enough to condemn the whole human race. One trespass introduced sin nature into the human condition. Sin nature led to condemnation, condemnation to death. So why didn't Jesus come in Genesis 4? Right? If, if God is stronger than death, if, if Christ's one act of righteousness is more powerful than Adam's one act of disobedience, why make us wait for thousands of years? Why bring generation after generation of sinner into the world? Why cause humanity to suffer at, at our own hands, for sure, but why, why cause all this evil and suffering to, to come into the world? And then, th this is the knockout question of this whole section, why give us more laws to transgress? If eating a fruit can do that much damage, how much more damage can the Mosaic Law do to the human race? How many laws did God give to humanity through Moses? I think I heard it. 613. Think about what happened when God gave one law to Adam. Don't eat of that tree. He ate of the tree. Think about all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the wickedness that came out of that one transgression. So much evil and wickedness, so much human suffering, so much death and despair from that one transgression that by the time you get to, to Noah, the flood. The only thing that God can do at that point is to just say, we gotta start over. And, and he wiped out all the people except for eight. And all of the land animals. It's brutal. It's, it's violent. It's awful. We deserved it. But from one transgression, all that wickedness that necessitated a judgment by flood. Oh God. Why, oh why, would you, would you persist with us and give us 613 laws to transgress? And not just one time. Here's the other thing about Adam. He transgressed the law one time. One time. One law, one time, by one man. And all that evil in the world. God gives Moses 613 laws. Countless people repeatedly breaking 613 laws. If Adam was like a little pebble hitting my windshield, the Mosaic Law is like a gravel truck just opening up the back tailgate and allowing all that gravel to come at my car. And my windshield just implodes. Why would God do that? 
In fact, I think I'm, I'm a little bit angry at God for doing that. If it was that bad after Adam, do you know how bad it has been since Moses? Just turn on the news. The things that we do to one another. Why? Because transgression compounds sin. 613 laws being broken repeatedly every single day over and over and over and over and over again. Why, God, did you do that? Well, we often want to be God's defense lawyer, so we say, well, God sent the law to restrain sin. God, God told us exactly what he wanted, and if we could just, with the Pharisees, clean ourselves up, if we could just do better, be more righteous, transgress less, then maybe we'd be able to pick humanity out of the problem we got ourselves into. That's, that's pharisaical thinking, and yet it's common even in the church. That's not why God gave us the law. The, the law was never intended to restrain sin. That's not the function, because God knew. If you can't stop yourself from eating one fruit from one tree when I give you all this other fruit on all these other trees, there's no way I give you 613 laws and that's going to somehow restrain your sin. It's not. It's going to compound your sin. It's going to compound the wickedness of human nature and things are going to go from bad to worse to worse to worse until it is so, so bad. Because from Moses to this present day, we are transgressing like Adam. Though from Adam to Moses, their sin was not like the transgression of Adam. So why give us the law? Paul says here, God gave the law to multiply sin. Take a look at verse 20. Now the law came in through Moses, implicitly, to increase the trespass. Notice he uses trespass and not sin. God, God's not just increasing sinful behavior that comes from a sin nature. It's to increase the, the trespass, to, to increase our guiltiness as a race. And from increasing our trespass, he increases our sinfulness. Paul will make that point later in Romans. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law told me what coveting was. And now I covet all the time. Why would God do that? Why? That seems counterproductive. Like, we're told that this is God's rescue plan. Okay. So back here, just look at this. At, to my left, your right, that's where Adam transgressed. From Adam to Moses, that's this many pages. None of them transgressed, but they're all guilty of sinning. We have a big flood in there. Then right here, that's where the law comes. 613 laws. Now look at how many pages till we get to Jesus. And we've been 2,000 years since Jesus. 
It's a lot of sin and a lot of transgression and a lot of suffering. But preachers stand up and say, I love the Bible because it's God's rescue plan. Well, that doesn't sound like a rescue plan to me. Well, here's the answer that Paul gives. Why would God do that? God says, Adam's sin, powerful as it was to damn all of humanity. What does it mean to damn all of humanity? Death, judgment, condemnation, hell. Adam's one transgression was enough to damn all of humanity. Nevertheless, that was too small a thing for God to redeem. That doesn't that, that is not enough for God to showcase the depth and the richness of His love and His grace against a rebellious creature. It was not enough. God could have undone it in Genesis 4, but it was not enough. He could have undone it after Genesis uh, nine after the flood but it was not enough God gave the law to multiply the transgression to increase the transgression and if increase the transgression to also increase sin why to show the immeasurable power of his grace through Jesus Christ it's as if if I had a vase here and I just cracked it and there was a crack in it and I said would you be impressed if I could fix this vase and you say I think that would be impressive because you can't fix glass at least not easily and I said, well, that's too small a thing. I can do that easy enough. And then I took up the glass and I just smashed it on the ground. And it's in a million pieces. And I said, would you be impressed now if I put that back together? Which is more impressive? Putting together the smashed vase is far more impressive. And that's the point. God wants us to see how great, how vast, how immeasurable is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He didn't send Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into the world for a small rescue mission. It was mission impossible, and he did it. So is there transgression and sin in your life that needs the redeeming touch of Jesus Christ? Is there anyone here who thinks that their sin is too great for God? Do you think that His grace cannot cover what you've done? We have no idea the depth and the width and the height and the breadth of the love and the grace of God. And although it has caused much suffering for God to allow us to transgress, to put up with us in patience while we sin against one another and against Him, He has endured that so that we might know the depth of his love toward us in Jesus Christ. He sent 613 laws into the world to prove the expanse of his grace towards sinners. 
So put yourself in Christ. Allow for His one act of righteousness to heal the cracks of sin that have shattered the windshield of your life. Because there is nothing that God cannot forgive. There is nothing that God cannot undo in your life. He sent His Son to redeem a desperately lost people. And when I was sitting in my study and I got to this point, I just sat there for a long time and praised God. Would that we be a church that begins to open the door on the expansiveness on the grace of God. Let us not be stingy in our own lives in receiving the grace of God and let us not be stingy in lavishing a lost and dying world, not with condemnation, but with grace. Because God is far more lavish in His grace than I ever knew or ever will know until I see Him face to face. Put your faith and confidence in that. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your grace. We have transgressed your law. And from transgression has come sin. And sin leads to death. But praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ that where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that you did not come to fix a small problem but an impossible problem. Oh Jesus, thank you for the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.